Well, the Lord be with you. You know, before they had cell phones, even before they had alarm clocks or even digital watches, the church has existed and gathered as a people together. But they needed a way to remind themselves that worship is happening and to call people into God's presence. And so historically, there were bells on every church steeple in the center of town that would ring as the call to worship. This morning, we will hear a similar call uh, with the bells ringing along, alongside of Psalm 27 as our call to worship. Let us uh, be called uh, ultimately by God into this space together. One thing I asked of the Lord that I will seek after to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent and he will set me high on a rock. I believe that I shall see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living living wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord.
to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow.
and brothers in Christ, the scriptures tell us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we are forgiven and we have peace with God and with one another. The peace of Christ be with you. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It is good to be uh, together in worship this morning. If you are new or visiting with us, welcome. We are glad that you are here, and uh, we encourage you to get to know one of us if uh, you would like to. Uh, we're here. Uh, we're here. Yes, obviously. We're standing here. <laughs> My name is Nate Skipper, and I am one of the pastors here at Fellowship, where our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. We have lots of cool things happening, even though the weather is not cool. How about this weather this weekend? Come on. It feels a little bit like June, but we have cool things that are happening for fall, uh, and they are in your bulletin. So please check them out. A couple things I just want to throw or highlight, make sure that you see, is the Fall Fest and Chili Night is this Wednesday. It will be cool again, uh, so we will warm up with some chili. And then also, uh, uh, the All Saints Sunday is a couple weeks away, and that's a way for us to remember and give thanks for folks in our life that have shaped uh, our faith story. So uh, make sure you check out that bulletin announcement and even a little global mission thing on the back uh, that's happening this Thursday. Cool stuff. But one of the coolest things that's happening this morning is that we have the opportunity to receive and welcome, uh, give thanks for um, new members, uh, folks that have decided to join a fellowship officially. And I'd like to invite those folks to come forward at this time if you are uh, here or and able to, along with Pastor Ross. These folks have endured with, uh, hopefully, with a little bit of joy, the Discover Fellowship class, uh, where we get to share a little bit about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a part of uh, the Fellowship Reformed Church, uh, and what that tradition means, and then a little bit of the particulars of being a part of this body. One of the things that we highlight in that class is that the body of Christ is a lot different uh, than being a, and being a member of that body uh, is a lot different than being a member of, let's say, Costco or Sam's Club. There, uh, those memberships get you uh, the opportunity to spend more money, and they really care less whether or not you're there. They're going to exist whether you're a member or not. 
But here at the church, a local church body, uh, your membership, like an arm or a leg, is integral to the ministry that we uh, get to participate in together. Um, And so, as one of our folks said, uh, the body at Fellowship Church evolves and changes and, and is dynamic because... We have new members, new parts of our body that join us each time. And so uh, this morning, uh, boy, you got me, Julie. Thanks be to God for Ross and remembering the microphone. Uh, We're going to give these folks a chance to introduce themselves, uh, but also share a little bit of why fellowship and why at this time. So Julie, you get to go first. Great. Hi, I'm Julie Fryer. And uh, my husband, Jonathan, and I have lived in Holland just for two years. Uh, We moved here right before the pandemic. Um, So it was challenging, to say the least, to find a church. Um, But started coming here and just felt immediately uh, the warmth and the welcoming. And I just feel like the Holy Spirit is very active in this church. So I'm very pleased and blessed to be able to to join the church here. So, and... This is my favorite dress because I wear it in my picture and I wear it all the time. So <laughs> That's great, Julie, because apparently Pastor Ross and I have uh, new members' outfits as well. <laughs> Good morning. I'm Mariah Borsma. I've lived in Holland the majority of my life. I've always been a believer but have not belonged to a church since I was a child. Um, recently, I've been compelled to... Um, deepen my faith in a community atmosphere, and I attended a few services, and this church just feels like the right fit for me. Hi, we're Kent and Kathy Ventil. We've been in Holland maybe 15-ish years, uh, previously Milwaukee, previously Central America. Uh, lifelong believers, we're happy to be here, uh, especially given the... Um, support for missions outside of this building that this uh, church keeps. Good morning. We are the Pentecosts. I'm Jesse. This is my wife, Shona, our son, Riley, and our daughter, Maeve. Um, We've been in Holland about 12 years, been to many different churches, and uh, came here last summer and just immediately felt welcomed. Um, felt like we belonged, and uh, so, you know, ever since we've been coming back, and that's kind of solidified that feeling, so very grateful that we found our place. And you must be spirit-filled, right, Jesse, with a name like Pentecost? Pentecost. Hi, I'm Ross and Thea Jose. Um, We moved full-time to the Lakeshore community a few years ago, and we were drawn here with the three-pastor structure and an engaged congregational leadership. Hi, I'm Liz Vanderweg, and this is Brian. We have two daughters, Anna and Lydia. Anna right now is on the other side of the world in Cambodia, and Lydia is down the hall in the confirmation class. One thing that we've appreciated about fellowship is just how service-minded the church is in the community and the world. Morning. We are the DeVries family. I'm Jamie, my husband Ross, our son Cameron and daughter Bristol, and then um, our other daughter that you'll see in the picture, Madison Allen's not with us today. She is up at Michigan Tech. Um, and one of the things that we were really excited about with Fellowship was the youth programming that is here um, and just how welcoming everybody has been to us. We are the Anyams. I'm Uzona, as my beautiful wife, Blessing. And we are blessed with two daughters, Jim Diotor here and 
Tim Natural is is coloring there. <laughs> so, well, wife um, fellowship. We came from China um, in July, and I just got a new job at Hope College. I, I just got my PhD in May, so I didn't have any money to furnish my house. And God so kind, God used the members of this church to furnish our house from the bedroom all the way to the sitting room, <laughs> you know. So they showed us so much love and hospitality. And on Sundays, they also have several persons who volunteer to take care of our daughter every Sunday so that we can listen to the sermon, mm -hmm. you know. And it's been very wonderful for us. For that, we are grateful to God, and we have decided to make it our home. We are so grateful for the ways in which each of these folks uh, will contribute to our life together for the gifts that God's given them. Uh, we also have three other families that were not able to be with us this morning. The first is David and Sandra Kaminga, uh, and they are uh, somewhere else, uh, mm -hmm. maybe joining us online this morning. Uh, and also Michael and Mercedes McDonald and their newborn son, Callum, who were supposed to be here, but they all got sick. Uh, yeah. And so they couldn't be here this morning. And finally, the Whirlands, Paul and Becky Whirland, uh, who were eager to have them all wel be welcomed, uh, even though they're not here uh, with us face-to-face. Uh, -face. Uh, they are going to be joining our body this morning. Right on. Well, it has been a great joy to journey with these guys for the last few weeks in our Discover Fellowship class. There's uh, three Rosses on stage right now, which is pretty great. I feel pretty good about that. Uh, they have shared their stories with our elders in the church, and, and now they're going to share with you some of the answers to the questions, the more generic questions they're already familiar with, and so they're going to answer them in uni unison before you this morning. So new members, hear these questions. This, the first one, do you renounce sin? and the power of evil in your life and in the world. Who is your Lord and Savior? Will you be a faithful member of this congregation and through worship and service seek to advance God's purposes here and throughout the world? And one more. Do you promise to accept the spiritual guidance of the church? to walk in a spirit of Christian love with this congregation and to seek those things that make for unity, purity, and peace. This is to them and to one another. So I'd like to invite you to stand up at this time. Do we, the fellowship, Congregation of Fellowship Church, promise to love, encourage, and support these brothers and sisters by extending God's love, by being an example of Christian faith and character, and by giving the strong support of God's family in fellowship, prayer, and service? If so, please say, we do. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the gifts of these folks and for the ways in which they will contribute to your body here at Fellowship Church. We pray that together we might be better equipped uh, to love and serve you and to serve this world uh, and witness to your love and grace that we know in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Stay standing. I'm going to offer to them, the newest members, a charge, which you can hear as well because it's for all of us at two, but it's from Ephesians chapter four, which encourages us to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love and making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Friends, I invite you to welcome our newest members at Fellowship Church. Come out.
We have for them gifts. They're in the front row. You can't see them, but you guys can get, grab them as you step down from the front stage here. And then also, as they are making their way down, the children are invited uh, to their Sunday school classes as we together sing. members said as they were exiting stage, tell them we already went to the first service because they were speaking right now. <laughs> hey, let's pray together. Almighty God, even as we sing today about the beauty of living in good fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters, we recognize that our lives are often the opposite. Sometimes we are terrible to each other. So please, O oh God, have mercy on us, whether we are the wrongdoers or the ones who have been wronged, 
After all, it is for both, the hurting ones and the ones who hurt, that your son Jesus came into the world strong to save. So make it so with us too today, O God, and to that end, may your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and the glory of Jesus our only concern, and it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, friends, today's text I've experienced as a bit of a hot potato, the kind that you really don't want to hold for very long. Uh, It's been tossed back and forth, and that's because this text is, first, deeply personal, and second, it is a text that has a history of being used and abused, of being whitewashed and weaponized, of being loosely interpreted, over-interpreted, and misinterpreted. And all along, throughout all of that, it is also a text that strikes a bit too close to home. What's the story? It's the story of David and Bathsheba. And, And their story is, in fact, famous, isn't it? Even though it's really a deep secret. But their secret has been shared the whole world over. It is a story fit for TMZ TV. A story about sex and power of decisions and consequences, of victims and violators, of public life and private life. If the events of the story were to happen again today, it would almost certainly be paraded publicly as yet another example of cancel culture or the Me Too movement or another lawsuit about the defamation of character. What's different, however, is that this story is also openly about God. And God has both a definitive word to say and a decisive deed to do in the midst of the scandal. The great biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann has rightfully said that in this story, we find out more than we want to know about King David and more than we can bear to understand about ourselves. But it is the word of God for the people of God today. So I invite you to hear the story as it is is told in the book that we love. 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. I'll do some reading and some summarizing because that's an entire two chapters otherwise. Chapter 11 verse 1 says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. They said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. The woman, then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. From there, I'm summarizing now, David engages a rather elaborate cover-up scheme, first trying to trick Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, into thinking that the child is actually his when it's not. But Uriah has an integrity that stands in sharp contrast to David's in this story and doesn't fall for it. So David 
dreams up an even worse scheme. He plans out a terrible battle strategy, particularly so that Uriah will be killed in battle and alongside many others too, and that is indeed what finally happens. The story continues in chapter or verse 26 of chapter 11, where it says, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Then chapter 12 begins with the prophet Nathan approaching David. I'm summarizing again, but he offers what appears to be the first parable in all of Scripture, and by it he speaks truth to power. The prophet Nathan tells the story of a rich and powerful man who steals a poor man's sheep. And in hearing this particular story, David is enraged, angered about the injustice done in the story, so much so that he demands that the wrongdoer deserves to die. And then Nathan finishes his parable with a twist, as they always end. He says to David, you are the man. Which sounds like locker room chatter, except this one is not congratulatory. It's confrontational. And so then it says in chapter 12, verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. And what Nathan said would happen, happened. David was forgiven by God. And yet the child still dies. And then it ends in verse 24 where it says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. And it's the beginning of a new story. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brought with me today three different pairs of glasses to represent three different ways of seeing our text today. The glasses represent our first filters. And the way we see anything is often the way we see everything. The mirrored sunglasses that I have first represent a way of seeing this story as being all about other people. The slant shades, what I'm calling them, these cool babies, the slant shades are about seeing the story as about me personally. They're broken, sad. (laughs) And the bifocals, the third pair, are about seeing the story as mostly about God with us. We'll take them one at a time, moving from the worst to the best. First, there is a way to read this text with mirrored sunglasses as primarily about other people. And this is for all the people who sit in church and often think that the word being preached today is the perfect word. For someone else. If you've ever sat there in the pew and thought, boy, I really, really, really hope so and so is listening right now because they need to hear this. (laughs) For the mirrored sunglasses, the key verse is chapter 11, verse 4, which offers the juicy details about David and Bathsheba, and it rather simply says that he took and she went. He lay with her. And she went home. And with that little of information offered to us 
Our minds are free to run and fill in the blanks with all the details and even to make assumptions about them and even other people too. That's what we do when we're wearing the mirrored sunglasses because it's all about someone else. And so some have read this text and said, see, all men are pigs. That's true, right? Even the righteous King David can't control himself. The men are the problem. Others, I'm not going to wear these the whole time. The uh, Others flip it over and perhaps even worse say, no, no, no. It's Bathsheba's fault. She's a temptress. After all, she was bathing on the roof, which, by the way, she wasn't. David was on the roof. She was not. Maybe women aren't the problem. And yet, Still others come so swift and strong to Bathsheba's rescue that it is rendered impossible that she did anything wrong in this text, which is an unnecessary effort. Maybe she is perfectly innocent. Maybe she's not. Maybe you're not. Who cares? It's not the center of the story. Now, if the issue isn't gender, then maybe it's power. Maybe it's power, and as we know, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Therefore, all power is bad, and all powerful people too. Case closed. Meanwhile, Bathsheba, in this story, seems to have no power. She's stuck, and desperate people do desperate things. So say the folks who wear the mirrored sunglasses. You get it, right? When we're reading the story uh, primarily about other people, we put on these shades and take up a view of everyone else with judgment or with pity. Now, to be honest, I really do think it's fair to find in this story that Bathsheba is the victim and David is the violator. There's no respectable evidence in the text to suggest that Bathsheba is guilty, and at least nowadays and in America, we are innocent until proven guilty, right? At the same time, it is David who is repeatedly named as the guilty party. He is named so not once, not twice, but three times over by three different people, including his own self. But the point I want you to hear first is that it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback, isn't it? It's easy to get all kinds of chatty about what other people are doing, right or wrong, in life. I think we learn this habit in middle school and high school and maybe never grow out of it, this preference we have for labeling other people. It's almost as if the goal in life is to successfully and simply label everyone else while also, at the same time, remaining unlabeled yourself. So there's the jocks and the cheerleaders, and and we know what they're like, right? So predictable. There's the Enneagram 2s and the Enneagram 8s. And we've got them all figured out, don't we? There's the red voters and the blue voters. And each one is just like the one right before them, right? But me? No. I'm complicated. I am sophisticated. I'm nuanced. Don't try to pin me down. I'm different. King David, however, yeah, he's a villain. And Bathsheba, yep, forever a victim. End of story. Except it's not. Maybe we need to be a little less trigger-happy with our label-making machines. 
maybe we should take Jesus seriously when he says, do unto others as you would want done unto you. And if you don't want to be so quickly and so simplistically labeled, then maybe we should not be so quick to label others so clearly. I heard the story recently of a group of pastors who wanted to create one of those rowing crews. You know, the long skinny boats with nine passengers in it. They wanted to try to compete at the level of the Ivy League schools. So they recruited nine people for their boat and they started practicing. But their times were always far, far worse than the other schools like Harvard and Princeton and Yale. So they got smart and they decided to send a scout over to those other teams to see what they were doing instead. And the scout came back with a rather surprising report. They said, I can't believe it. They have eight people rowing and only one person barking out commands. We have eight people barking out commands and only one person rowing. Sound familiar? Perhaps we should try a different model, they said. What if one of the applications of today's story is that rather than permanently labeling other people as all good or all bad, what if you began to realize, recognize that other people just might be equally complex and nuanced and capable of change as you are? You may have noticed today that I've titled today's sermon, Victims, Violators, and Other Nicknames That Don't Stick. I say it that way because David is a terrible person in this story. A rapist and a murderer, probably. And he ends up being the only person the Bible described as a man after God's own heart. He's clearly more than an overly simplistic label. Even better, Bathsheba is not forever and always a victim. Maybe you noticed in the reading of the text, it caught my attention this week. Bathsheba is clearly named in the story before and after the incident happens. But in the middle, in the yuck, she's not named. She's simply called the woman or the wife of Uriah. It's almost as if when the terrible thing is happening, you lose your identity, and maybe it feels like that. But by the end of the story, she gains her name back, and she's offered a new beginning. The label's finally do not stick. You see, the goal of life, the goal of the life of faith is not to get certain and shouty about how everyone else is living rightly or wrongly. The goal is to live the faith yourself. And with that, we're invited to take off the mirrored sunglasses and to put on instead some of these cool slant shades, which if they hold together, I'll put them on for at least a second. The slant shades are kind of like the series that we're in right now where we are invited to read between the lines, to actually be a people who not only read God's word, but also allow it to read me. Even David, you may have noticed in the story, actually has a hard time getting to this second point. When the prophet Nathan comes to him and Uh, presents his story about the rich man stealing the poor man's sheep. David is at first escalating in his religious indignation. He gets all kinds of judgmental and pity towards those other people in the story. He's relishing an attitude of moral superiority until, until the key verse strikes for the slant shades, chapter 12, verse 7, where Nathan says to David, you are the man. You are the woman. 
It is at that moment in the story where the sin problem is shifted from being their problem to being my problem. Now, David could have had the prophet Nathan executed. He's the king. He could have done that, but he didn't. Shockingly, he confesses. David does not ramp up his defenses, deny his guilt. He does not distract by pointing the finger at all kinds of other people. He simply admits his sin. And boy, oh boy, is there all the difference in the world between the one who points out other people's sins and the one who freely admits their own. Consider a few examples from the newspapers. One from 1991 that, for whatever reason, stuck in my head for a long time is Wall Street Journal, where it said this. The U.S. has a drug problem, a high school sex problem, a welfare problem, and an AIDS problem, and more. None of this will go away until more people in positions of responsibility are willing to come forward and explain in frankly moral terms that some of the things people do nowadays are wrong. There's probably some truth to that. Morality matters, and society will flounder without it. But also notice how it's all about them. It's like the mirrored sunglasses, really. It's about the people who are doing the wrong things and the other people who should fix the problem. It's not about me. Another story about a century earlier in the London Times, the newspaper editors asked their readers to submit responses to a rather simple question. They said, what's wrong with the world today? As you can imagine, there was a grand variety of answers offered, and eagerly, with detail, of course. Today, if we did the same thing, it'd be like kicking a hornet's nest, wouldn't it? It'd be like throwing chum into some shark-infested waters. But it was a churchman, G.K. Chesterton, you might recognize the name, who wrote the most memorable and the most accurate response. To their question, what's wrong with the world today, he offered a simple four-word response. He said, dear sirs, I am. If the story of David and Bathsheba doesn't invite you to consider your own sin, they'd invite you to read it again. To be sure, this story has been used at many a men's retreats as a guide on how not to ruin your life in three easy steps. Or also, perhaps, at many women's Bible studies for some help on how to handle the sins of the flesh or something like that. Fair enough. By all means, please do apply the story to yourself. But also... Please beware of any effort to make it only about avoiding sin entirely. Now, of course, sin is bad. Duh. It's bad in God's eyes, and it's bad for humans too, everywhere. What David did was wrong. But listen, if we make the life of faith only about avoiding sin entirely, then we begin to write Christ out of Christianity. Because the truth is, we are Sinners, we are people who sin. Avoiding sin entirely is not only impossible, it's also not necessary. Now, if you are at this point gearing up to pin me to the wall over there right next to the cross, first, thank you for the compliment. And second, let me introduce you to a few friends who I've never met, but I trust, and you might recognize their names as well. First, there's Tim Keller pastor at Redeemer Church, New York City. 
he says, the prerequisite to receiving the gospel is knowing that you need it. There's Ellen Davis from Duke Divinity School. She says, for many of us, our first deep experience of God comes only after we have exhausted all strategies for evading or excusing our sin. There's Eugene Peterson, pastor to the pastors. He says, in the Christian life, our primary task isn't to avoid sin, but to recognize it and to respond appropriately to it. There's Luther, who often got himself in trouble for saying somewhat reckless things. Luther is the one who said, love God and sin boldly. (laughs) What he means by that, of course, is not that sin itself is good, but be bold in admitting the sins that that we commit. And then there's St. Augustine, who does not need any introduction, and he's the one who's known to have said, O Felix culpa, O happy sin, not because sin is good, but because it drives us to a Savior. The last word, of course, belongs to Jesus. It always should. And so I'm thinking whether today you resonate more with Bathsheba the victim or with David the violator, Remember that the truth is that Jesus did not come into this world because everybody was already perfectly all right. In his own words, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. If the goal of Christianity is to avoid sin entirely, then there will always be religious pressure to deny it and to hide it wherever we find it. But if the goal of Christianity is instead to announce that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us, then it's okay to admit our sin. After all, the good news is not that I am not a sinner, nor is it that if I just try hard enough, I might successfully avoid sin. The good news is that God is more ready and able to forgive than I am ready and able to sin. And if sin drives us to God, then oh, Felix culpa, oh, happy sin. For the sin problem has already been dealt with. Which brings us to the third way of seeing the text with bifocals as a story about God with us. You see, if the text is only juicy details about other people, then it belongs at the checkout aisle of the grocery store among the other sensationalist tabloids if the text is only about you and I and about how we might successfully avoid sin or properly recover from it then it belongs in the back of the bookstores like Barnes and Noble particularly in the self-help section but if this story is ultimately about God with us then we need the bifocals for it is always a mistake to write God out of any story The bifocals help us to highlight two of the most important details that are right there in the text, often overlooked. There's two of them. First, it's a definitive word. Chapter 11, verse 27, where it says that the thing David did displeased the Lord. But then it also offers a definitive deed. Chapter 12, verse 13, where it says of David, the Lord has put away your sin. Yes, some of the things people do nowadays are wrong. In fact, chief among them is me. And 
sin does not get the final word about you or me or about anyone else that God so chooses to forgive. And the great surprise of the text is not that David sinned, nor is it that Bathsheba was so terribly violated. The great surprise is that a new beginning is available to both. And it is to us as well, as victims and violators alike. I'm not sure which pill is actually harder to swallow. That the one who feels most filthy right now really can be cleaned up. Or that God is able to put away the dirtiest of deeds already done. One of the silver linings of the story of David and Bathsheba is that we have gained Psalm 51, beloved by the church, penned by King David after this event. It is most classically known as his confession of his sin, and it is that. The psalm is about sin, but it is also and all the more so about God's redemption. In fact, in Psalm 51, you'll find four different words to describe sin you'll find 19 different words to describe God's forgiveness and restoration. The psalm is actually about God making a new beginning for sinners. I've been a church-going person my entire life. I recently uh, did the math about how many sermons I think I've heard in my lifetime. I think it's around 3,000. Sometimes church twice on Sunday and in college three times a week, etc. And yet part of my continued conversion, even as fresh as this fall, is a growing awareness and appreciation of the finality of the cross. Have you heard this phrase? The finality of the cross. I hope that it blows your mind in a really, really good way. The finality of the cross is a way of seeing the world with the bifocals and particularly by looking first to the cross of Christ and then looking second at the world, including my own self. And from the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. It is finished. He says it in the Gospel of John. Well, what is it? (laughs) It might be something even bigger than any of us can fully comprehend, but it certainly also includes the sin problem. And about that, Jesus said, it is finished. And after Jesus said that, the New Testament rolls on and offers a new word in the Greek. It is ephipax, which is probably very forgettable for you, but what it means is once and for all. That word is used in Romans, in Corinthians, in Hebrews, in 1 Peter. And every time that the word appears, it is speaking about Christ's work on our behalf on the cross. And it says of that, it was done once and for all. And so, as it was with David long ago, so it is now all the more for us in Christ. A decisive word has been spoken. It is finished. And a decisive deed has been done once and for all. And this is gospel. If Jesus really is the Christ, then God is no longer dealing with us according to our sins. And you, dear friends, like David and Bathsheba, whether victim or violator, whatever... You are not defined by your past. You are not stuck 
in your present or even the sin that so easily entangles right now, in Jesus' name, God is no longer dealing with us according to our sins. I wonder, do you keep on confessing the same old sin over and over again? Anybody? You can stop. Have you ever wondered why a terrible thing that's happening in your life, maybe even right now, and thought that this is God's punishment for some previous sin? Nope. How do I know? Well, I know because the son of David came specifically to deal with the sin problem, and he offered a decisive word. It is finished, and he did a decisive deed once and for all. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, this is good news. I invite you to stand and in our response this morning, we'll sing of Jesus Christ, who is the one who has set us free and forgiven us.
friends, mirrored sunglasses, slant shades, or bifocals. I hope you go from this place to take up the bifocals, and as you do, remember the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. So go in peace. Amen. Amen.